In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. How fitting it is on Trinity Sunday, as is the custom and has been for years, that we sing such a simple hymn for our hymn of the day after such a mind-bending confession or creed with so many distinctions and details, as though perhaps our faith were beyond our ken. But in the preaching of the gospel, in this simple message encapsulated for us in John 3.16 so beautifully, and which is so dear to us, we see that the farthest and widest mystery of godliness is revealed to us in Christ in the simple and clear doctrine of Jesus and what he has done. In Jesus' name, the foundational dogmatic statement of the Old Testament church, which was repeated again and again for God's people to remember, was known as the Shema and was spoken by Moses to the whole assembly of Israel in Deuteronomy 6. Shema is Hebrew for hear, as in hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God. He is our God. He is one. The foundational dogma of the New Testament church, which we repeat again and again every Sunday to remember, is contained in the creed. The word creed comes from the Latin credo, which means I believe, as in I believe in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have three creeds which confess the same biblical truths, the Apostles, the Nicene, and of course today the Athanasian, which we read every year on Trinity Sunday. What God gives his people to hear, we believe. God says Shema, and we say Credo. God tells us to hear we confess that we believe what he says. God speaks and fulfills his word. We listen to it and trust him. Moses said, The Lord your God, just a few chapters after the Shema, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This prophet is none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of Mary, whom we have come to know and believe to be the very Son of God, our Savior. This prophet, like Moses, who was raised up from our own flesh and blood, is our Lord and God, who loves us and who says to us, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. The clearest depiction of the triune God in the gospel accounts is when Jesus himself was baptized in the Jordan and the Father spoke from heaven while the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, Moses said. The Father tells all nations to hear his Son and Jesus commands that disciples be made of all nations by means of baptism. 
into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to keep and hear all things which he has commanded. The Lord our God is one. The Lord our God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is what the Bible teaches. It is impossible to separate our confession of the Trinity from the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. The Lord our God is one. This word for one is not a lonely unit. It is the same word used in Genesis 2.24, when God joined man and wife and made them one flesh. Within this oneness is a plurality. That is why God said, let us make man in our image. A statement which to this day confounds the Jews who reject the Trinity. They can't make sense of their own oracles of God. But we know it. We see it because it's been revealed to us. Let us make man in our image. From the union of man and woman, God causes new life to be born and fellowship to grow. That's what you see here with every family. So from the union of father and son proceeds the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. And that's what we see here as we all gather as one family. It is the Holy Spirit who brings the love of God into human hearts and gives fellowship with God. He does so by speaking words for us to hear. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are one God. We do not understand God, to be sure, by comparing him to man, wife, and child as though by some cheesy analogy. No, no. But we understand the value and purpose of human life by knowing who made us and how he made us. Male and female he made us in his image. God created the family of man to reflect himself to reflect the trinity in unity of his eternal Godhead. And more than reflect God, God created the family of man to know God and to fear, love, and trust in God. This is why God is, as Psalm 68 so beautifully says, a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. God is not solitary. He is one. But he is not lonely. He alone is God, but he is never alone. God created man. It is not good for man to be alone. He sets the solitary in families because he himself in heaven is not solitary. He is one. And so that we may reflect again God's righteousness and holiness and oneness and regain fellowship with him, the Holy Spirit calls and gathers us by the gospel to be with other people who know their need for forgiveness from God, who receive forgiveness from God, and who express their gratitude to God for sending Christ his Son to take our sins away. As the body of Christ, Christ our head tells us to love one another. In order to love one another, we must worship God with one another. 
Shema Israel. He says to the whole assembly, all those called by his name. And we are called by his name. God is gregarious. He is not Allah, the demon God of the Mohammedans, who basks in his own lonely oneness, praising himself for his lonely glory and power. No, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who love each other from eternity and who desire to talk and listen and love each other and participate in the joy and glory that they each share as one eternal God. So we should live with one another by not forsaking the assembling together as is the manner of some, read Hebrews 10, but instead teaching and admonishing one another in spiritual psalms, hymns, and songs singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. Colossians 3. God is gregarious. He loves children. He loves marriage. He loves what he made. He created the family by making man and woman in his own image. He created you. He creates his church through water and the word by which he gives us new birth into the family of God. He loves you. He loves your children. It is no wonder then that when Moses first spoke the Shema, he followed it with the command to love God and the command for fathers to teach their children the love of God in the home. Again, from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the unity of God in three persons, is a very practical doctrine. It's for children. It's not just a dogmatic decree that we must learn to get right so that we can, with all cold and technical confidence, claim to worship the true God. No, it's something much more than that. It's something to talk about. It's something to teach. It's something to learn about from God's word as we gather together as saints who confess our sins and receive with each other the righteousness of Christ that clothes us all and that clothes us each. It's warm and enlivening. It engages the mind and fills the heart. The love of God, his love for us by which we love him. His forgiveness and reconciliation and patience toward us who with our first parents have fallen into sin and brought death into his beloved world. All of this is found in the doctrine of who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who God is is not a factoid of textbook doctrine. Who God is is revealed in the very gospel itself that saves us. 
It is the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. Colossians 1. To know God as triune is to know the gospel that saves, and to know the gospel that saves is to know God as three in one. Just as the doctrine of the Trinity is all over the place in our worship services, as we glorify the threefold name of God in our prayers and hymns, in our curiae and liaison, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, as we invoke the name first given to us when we were baptized, and as we close our services with the Trinitarian benediction of the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, so also the doctrine of the Trinity is found all over in Holy Scripture. It's not the result of Christian doctrine becoming more developed or advanced over time. Nonsense. As we heard in our Old Testament lesson with the holy, holy, holy Lord God of Sabaoth, as we deduce from the benediction I just mentioned at the very end of the service by which God told Moses to put his name on his people, foreshadowing how Jesus commanded the same name to be put on us in our baptism as we see from the very word God itself. In the Old Testament, Elohim, a plural noun meaning gods, but that's used with singular verbs. The Lord our gods, the Lord is one. And as we see in so many other examples in the Bible, it is extremely crystal clear in the Old Testament that there is a plurality in the unity of God and that this plurality is three. This isn't boring technical jargon, dear brothers and sisters. It is central to your faith as a Christian. The doctrine of the Trinity separates Christianity from every other religion, whether worshiping many false gods like the Hindus or one false god like the Jews and Muslims. It is worth noting, however, that what else separates Christianity from every other religion? Every other religion teaches that man earns God's approval or the favor of the gods by means of obedience to the law and his own sacrifices. Every other religion teaches that we must submit or surrender, obey and fulfill some code of righteousness by which life after death is gained. But it's all a lie. Only the true God, besides whom there is no other, only the Lord our God, sends his Son to be obedient in our place, to suffer the punishment of our disobedience as our substitute, to become true man and do for men what we cannot render. Only the Lord our God lives and reigns as true bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh in the highest heaven, where he rules his church through the gospel we hear and intercedes for us poor sinners before the throne of the Father's grace, the Father who sent him, the Father who received him again. Only the true God, the holy, 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 before whose glorious presence all flesh is undone and destroyed. Only this God gives us his favor and love by pure grace and compassion in the bowels of his own dear son who loves us 
our brother Jesus Christ and says to us that our iniquity is pardoned and our sin is purged. If the doctrine of the Trinity is intellectually incomprehensible, a hundred times more so and beyond, is the doctrine of grace beyond your natural ken. It must be revealed to you for you to hear. Hear, O Israel. Who God is is three in one. And what he does to save us and bring us back to himself are tied together in the very nature of the matter. God who is three in one is the God who saves sinners by pure grace, who loves what he made and who works faith in the hearts of his chosen saints to believe the truth. God who is not three in one is a liar, a bully, a cruel taskmaster, a judge who shares no glory with you and who is never satisfied with what you do and who never delivers what he promises. Such a God is an idol. All idols underfoot be trod. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. To God all praise and glory. The doctrine of the Trinity is the eternal truth of God. The eternal truth not just from God, but about God. The eternal truth of God's essence is revealed in the work of Christ. Jesus said that whoever has seen him has seen the Father, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit from the Father, whom he reconciled by his blood. The work of Christ is the work of God. The work of Christ is the message of God. Christ reveals the Father. God the Holy Spirit enlightens us by teaching us to believe that we are reconciled to God the Father through the work of God the Son, the Lord our God is one. Now this is a lot. It is a lot to meditate on the beauty of the Trinity. The Trinity in unity and unity in Trinity of God is as far outside of human understanding as the grace of God in Christ. And yet we praise him. We give him glory because he has shown mercy on us. And it will be an eternity to ponder. And in the midst of eternity, it will remain forevermore a beautiful mystery that even the perfectly sanctified mind will not be able to grasp, but that our perfectly sanctified hearts will love. We don't understand in order to believe. We believe in order to seek understanding. It's a lot, though. And Nicodemus thought so too. He had questions. He thought he needed Jesus to, to answer his questions because he thought he needed to understand in order to believe. So he came to Jesus by night. And I'm reminded of what Jesus said to the high priest the night he was arrested when the high priest asked him about his doctrine. I spoke openly to the world, Jesus said. I always talked in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. So what answers was Nicodemus expecting? He can go to church. He can ask you and me what we heard in church. 
What does he expect? Answers just for him? He begins by telling Jesus what he knows. Not just he, but what we know. We know, he says. He expects Jesus to build on this, to carry on as though impressed with what they have figured out. But Jesus will not build on it. He will not honor what Nicodemus thinks he knows. He simply tells him that he must be born again, and it's almost funny. From here on, Jesus leads the conversation. It's no longer about what Nicodemus knows or has figured out. It's about what Nicodemus cannot do for himself. He must be born again. Forget what you know, Nicodemus. What you said we know. Instead, listen to what God knows. Amen, amen, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. And why not, Nicodemus? If Jesus has told you earthly things and you do not understand, how do you expect to understand heavenly things? It's because you think you learn the mystery of godliness by ascending from earth to heaven with the sharpness of your mind and the purity of your obedience, but you don't. You don't, and neither do you. You find it here on earth. You find the mystery of godliness revealed where the incomprehensible makes himself known in Christ the man. You find the mystery of godliness revealed when the impossible standards of God's holy law are fulfilled for all to see. This is the reward for your wisdom. This is the punishment for your sin. You find God in his salvation where the Son of Man is lifted up for you to see. There's the result of your natural birth. It is death and damnation. But see God himself bear it for you in his holy body and soul. See God give his flesh and shed his blood to win for you what no man can earn. Who has known the mind of the Lord? But see here the mind of God revealed. All his thoughts toward you revealed. See him willingly bear your sin and earn peace for you with God. It is the only place it can be found. It is found where God has mercy on the helpless. It is found not in the achievements of life. And no, it is found in the new birth that God gives freely in his own name. For it is out of the mouth of babes and sucklings that he has ordained strength. And this strength is yours in Christ. It is yours not because you've redeemed the time, but because Christ has redeemed you and washed away your sin. It is yours not because you have learned a thing or two, or because you've raised children in the faith, or succeeded as a father in the home, but because all things were made yours in your baptism. Nicodemus didn't need to tell Jesus what he knew. He needed to learn. He needed to hear. So hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is Christ. We are born again into his death and resurrection by being buried with him and rising to faith. And we make use of this new birth when we listen to Jesus. And it's yours. God is yours. What surpasses your knowledge, he is yours, not as an intellectual property. But he is your father. He is your brother. He is your comforter. And this is the foundational dogmatic statement, therefore. Above and beyond the Shema, above and beyond any creed. 
but that encapsulates both of those and teaches you to know that it is yours when you say, I am baptized into Christ. That which offends human reason, that which gives no quarter to the thoughts of man, as though God must build on something that we know and do. Know what glorious grace it is that God builds on nothing we do or understand or say, but builds rather on what he has done. And what glorious grace that he teaches us to honor Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, his eternal essence, his eternal existence, that he teaches us to glorify him by teaching us to glorify his grace. The love we have as Christians is eternal. It is the love that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have within the Godhead, and it is a love that is extended towards you. It is found in those words that close our text for this morning, which so clearly summarize everything we love and expect to hear on Sunday morning. That God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, dear Christians, can there be anything simpler and clearer than this? In Jesus' name, amen.